Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thanks for your support on Patreon, John Wright. John Wright was a successful publisher in the early 17th century, and he was so successful, publishing mostly military drill manuals, that he got to meet Maurice of Orange in person, and recommend the best drill manual for his troops. This is of course all a lie, but if you would like me to lie about you, you know where to go. Patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. Thanks so much to my patrons for making this show possible, and thanks to you for listening too. Without any further ado, I hope you enjoy episode 29 of the 30 Years War. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Thirty Years' War. So last time, our analysis of Anglo-Spanish relations began in earnest. We discovered how difficult King James's balancing act had become. On the other hand, King James longed to save his son-in-law Frederick and his daughter Elizabeth from the consequences of their actions in the Palatinate by sending some kind of force. But on the other hand, King James despised the idea of entering into the war in Europe, and he believed sincerely in the possibility of having all his problems solved through diplomacy, with the Spanish marriage leading this cause. If the Spanish princess Maria could be wed to his son Charles, then England could serve as the fulcrum upon which the Protestant and Catholic concerns of the continent would be balanced. This aim took on a life of its own from early 1621, as King James's mission became progressively more urgent with the defeat of Frederick's forces at White Mountain. The Spanish invasion of the Palatinate, which accompanied it, was also terrible, and the resulting outcry in English public opinion became increasingly anti-Spanish and anti-Catholic as a result. This made James's ambitions for achieving the Spanish marriage all that much more difficult. In this episode, we explore these negotiations and discussions between Madrid and London from a unique perspective, that of an English gentleman who began his career in favour of an alliance and marriage agreement with Spain, and who ended his career as one of England's most outspoken critics of the entire premise. We also touch on Parliament, James's difficulties, and the general political context of the era. If this sounds good to you, history friends, then you're in for a loaded episode. Let's begin. At some point during the early phases of the war, likely during the winter of 1618-19, to the English statesman, MP and aristocrat Sir Robert Phillips sat down to pen a long letter on the question of the Spanish marriage. The manuscript which was left behind 
has provided historians with a great resource. For here lay the opinions of King James's contemporaries on one of the most contentious questions then facing English foreign policy. Written as it was in the period just before the disaster at White Mountain, and even before Frederick's acceptance of the Bohemian crown, we might be surprised to observe Phillips defend the policy of a Spanish marriage, as only a patriotic, well-travelled Englishman could. Phillips had travelled to Madrid as part of the English embassy in recent years, and while there, he had conversed with several exiled English Catholics who seemed to have made an impression upon him. Yet, what is remarkable about Sir Robert Phillips' experience is that while in this early stage of his life he rigorously defended and supported the Spanish marriage mission, from 1620 onwards, Phelps would become the most outspoken critic of the idea, and he would even spend time in the Tower of London for his unfavourable views. Phelps' ideological journey in this regard is of great interest to us, even while the full explanation for his change of heart isn't all that easy to discern today. Phelps gave an assessment of Spanish power, of the desirability of the Spanish marriage, and of England's place in the politics of Europe. His views during the winter of 1618-19 provide a refreshingly calm antidote to the exaggerated image sometimes presented by anti-Spanish English courtiers during the same period. In reference to the rampant depopulation of Spain which had become state policy during the preceding years, a depopulation we've covered before having looked at the expulsion of the Moriscos during 1609-14 and the demographic impact this policy had on the Spanish people, Phillips wrote, In Spain there is much want of people, many places depopulated, it being not long since the Moriscos were exposed, and, by reason of their sending and passing so many to the Indies, besides the continual employing others in their wars, but the principal want of this monarchy is their slender force at sea. Phillips spent little time discussing the Germans, the Dutch or the Turks, aside from commenting that the latter were the enemy of all Christendom. However, he did underline the intractability of the Franco-Spanish relationship and the rivalry of both powers which bled into so many sections of diplomacy, trade and strategy between them. Venice and Savoy were noted to be hostile, as was the Pope, and Phelps thus concluded that, considering her lack of European friends, her scattered domains and her want of security, Spain ought to see sense when examining the English marital alliance. To establish a security upon this so scattered and dispersed a monarchy, Phillips said, Spain must be strengthened at sea, or at least have its position improved through an alliance with a sea power. Where else could such an ideal ally be found, Phillips asked, then in England? An island the greatest of the world, fertile and abounding with people, ships, and mariners, and most strong at sea. Sharing a perspective which may appear amusing considering the later scale and power of the British Empire, Phillips claimed that an Anglo-Spanish alliance would be useful to Spain for another reason. England, at least at this point anyway, did not harbour aspirations for an empire which spanned across the globe. England was not, Phillips wrote, distracted by pretensions in half a dozen different corners of the world, and instead Phelps wrote that the English Having found by experience that the power of authority among foreigners is more safe and necessary than possessing foreign dominion, 
they have, like the tortoise, withdrawn themselves into their own shell, from whence they do not upon slight motives sally, but yet demonstrate to the world their power to do it when necessary occasions shall be presented to them. Perhaps considering Phillips's status, it is not surprising to see him greatly overrate the power and influence of King James in Europe, yet his expressions are worth sharing nonetheless. Phelps wrote that King James, In being the head of the Protestants, Calvinists and Lutherans, is, as it were, the arbiter of the affairs of Germany, Polonia and Swabia, and is little less in France and Holland, and can give or cut the wings to any design of Savoy and Venice. He can likewise hinder or facilitate the election of the emperor, and lastly it is in his power, whensoever it seemeth good unto him to reign and cut short the proceedings and insolences of the rebels in Holland. After weighing up England's strengths and Spain's weaknesses, Phillips attempted next to balance the pros and cons of the looming marriage treaty with Spain, by examining first its potential negative implications for James, should he become beholden to or friendly with a Catholic power in Europe. Phillips noted, As the King of Spain is the head and principal among the Catholic princes, so the King of England is the chief amongst those of his religion, and matching his son with the Catholic king, it may pass that he will relinquish the friendship he holdeth with the Protestant princes, and yet cannot assure himself that ever the Catholics will be unto him so fixed friends as undoubtedly were those of his own profession. And this may not only happen in respect of his foreign alliance, but with his own subjects and domestic vassals at home, who, it may be by reason of this marriage, may put themselves into a civil war, the lamentable and perilous effects whereof have been more than visibly discerned in France and Germany. And so the King of England, upon new friendships, wanting other and greater foundation, save the will and liking of him that makes them, and forsaking his ancient allies and leagues, who seem to be more firm and obliged unto him, in being all of one and the same sort, doth by this way expose himself to the hazard not only of losing his cloak, but all his whole garment likewise. Strikingly for the time, Phelps went on to argue that, contrary to the messages often poured out from the pulpit, King James's power did not rest on the idea that he was the leader of Protestantism. The king drew no prestige from this idea either. Instead, James was strong and respected above all because of the strength of his own armed forces. Thus, an alliance with Spain would increase these powers, and they would not reduce England's power because true power in Phelps' mind was not based on James's claim to lead Protestant Europe. There was no weight to this idea. After all, King James had not been selected to lead the Evangelical Union, the Elector Palatine had been. Soon, Phelps was to be validated. Once Frederick V, as the leader of the Union, attempted to draw from his position and call upon the other members of the Evangelical Union, Frederick was abandoned, and so Frederick's power evaporated with this failure. King James would be immune to such faulty allies, because the king made his own power and respect by the force and reputation of his own supreme arms. As if undermining the very concept of James's role as the leader of Protestantism wasn't striking enough, Phillips goes one better when he attempted to draw the king's attention towards the dangers which Puritanism, referred to here as the Reformed Religion, posed to his reign. Phillips concluded, Calvinism doth give license and occasion for men daily to invent 
new opinions, which, for the most part, love new changes and beget tumults, while that, without such occasions, the Catholic faith is always one and the same and more compatible to princes and their states. To conclude, the supposed reformed religion is dangerous to the state of kings, unquiet and turbulent for subjects, safe and secure for none, like unto a vessel without a governor, subject to the moving of the winds and waves. Incredibly, Phillips advocated a relaxation of penal laws and to grant more concessions to Catholics in England, since this would ensure a sense of gratitude and loyalty among them. The king shouldn't fear that these Catholics would try to overreach and grasp at more insidious aims, since these Catholics would be so thankful to their king for liberating them from the intolerant policies of the past that they would help King James build his kingdom alongside Protestants. Phillips wished to challenge the status quo abroad, as well as at home though, and he wrote that It doth as well concern England to cast an eye towards the increase and power of the Flemings, i.e. the Dutch, on the sea and in the matter of contratation, that is, trading and bargaining. Phelps was even willing to suggest a scheme whereby England evacuated the Indies to the Spanish in return for several trade guarantees in Europe. In this scenario, the English will be at loggerheads with the Dutch, their traditional ally against Spain, but Phelps evidently believed that this trade-off would be worth it in the long run. All this, Phelps concluded, may be effected and brought to pass by the present marriage, the careful observing the conditions determined, and by the well-using of the English merchants to the great glory, authority, augmentation, safety and profit of both crowns, and the general quiet and peace of all Christendom. Phillips's conclusions bear a remarkable similarity and familiarity to those put forward by Count Gondomar, Spain's ambassador to England. We met him in the last episode, and noted how he was a pretty good friend of King James, and in spring 1619, Count Gondomar was back home in Spain to report on what he had seen and learned, a return trip which granted Vox Populi, that revolutionary pamphlet, such scandalous material as we have seen in the last episode. And Count Gondomar, when in Madrid, gave his own views on the utility of the marital alliance, as well as on Spain's general woes. First, much like Phillips, Count Gondomar gave his sombre views on the state of Spain and its greatly reduced populace, which created some inglorious sights for those travellers moving through Spain. Gondomar noted, The drop in population, the poverty and wretchedness of Spain today, which foreigners publish, for travelling through it is more painful and uncomfortable than through any other deserted land in all of Europe, because there are no beds or inns or meals, because of the oppression and the taxes paid by the subjects. Gondomar then gave an incredibly insightful, but also rather downcast interpretation of the state of affairs of Spain, especially in comparison to its more, apparently, vibrant rivals in the wake of the eruption of the Thirty Years' War. Gondomar noted, We are allowing them, that is, England and Holland, to take away our wool, which is the best in the world, and only Spain when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market possesses within its borders olive oil and everything else necessary to make good cloth. And despite this, we dress largely in the goods of England, Holland and other foreign countries. Things such as these and many other things that we don't need, they send us in abundance every day and take in exchange our gold and silver and make us useless. For it is like selling wheat from the thresher's floor very cheaply and buying all year round expensive and bad bread from the bakers. And to sum up, More than five out of six people are unemployed in production and business, while in England and Holland, the unemployed don't number more than one out of a thousand. And this is why they grow as much in wealth, power and population as we decrease. Gondomar was focusing on the trade deficit suffered by Spain here, and at the negative impact which the Anglo-Dutch entrepreneurship was having on Spanish incomes. Unlike Sir Robert Phillips, who had focused his criticism largely on the Dutch, Count Gondomar was frank about the dangers posed to Spanish interests by English and Dutch alike. In a turn of phrase which proves somewhat fantastic to modern readers, Count Gondomar greatly exaggerated the capabilities of King James at sea when he wrote, Our ports are full of English and Dutch ships, while in theirs there is not a single Spanish vessel for they do not allow any foreigner to bring in a load of merchandise without being taxed and obliged to take out as much from the country. England can easily launch a thousand ships upon the sea in several armadas and squadrons and 100,000 men in them. After spending more than five years in London and in the King's company no less, Count Gondomar evidently had not managed to grasp the true extent of English sea power and he seemed to believe much like Phillips, that England's naval capabilities were sufficient to mount all levels of expeditions against all forms of enemies. Despite their common ground and similar claims, it is unknown whether Count Gondomar and Sir Robert Phillips ever met. In her examination of Phillips' journey from pro-Spanish to virulently anti-Spanish, the historian Catherine van Aerd suggested that the two men could have shared informants or researchers as they penned their letters. The stage appeared set for a wonderful friendship between Gondomar and Phillips. Two men who held near identical views and could be charged with facilitating the successful conclusion of the Anglo-Spanish marriage. Yet such opportunities were torpedoed in the summer of 1619 as Sir Robert Phillips embarked upon a tour of Spain. During this trip, it seems likely that Phillips was made aware of just how intractable 
the differences between Spain and England were, and just how uncompromising and demanding King Philip III's government was content to be. Rather than genuinely interested in the hand of Prince Charles, Spain appeared to be stringing England along so as to upset her potential to influence events. It is not known for certain if Phelps's trip to Spain was the catalyst for his abrupt change of heart, but what we do know is that from 1620 onwards, Phelps's views of Spain and his attitude towards the Spanish marriage seem to have been completely reversed. It's also likely that the very pace of events in Europe may have served to transform Phelps into one of the loudest, most ardent agitators against the Spanish marriage. From August 1619, the Bohemian Revolt dragged in the Elector Palatine, and once Frederick V had been issued with the imperial ban the following spring, and Spanish aid was forthcoming to aid the Emperor, it would have been immensely difficult for Phelps to maintain his original position. Indeed, news of Frederick's acceptance of the Bohemian crown seems to have confirmed Phelps' turn, and in early September 1619, from his home in Somerset, he penned the following letter to an unknown individual. Unknown, since the letter is simply addressed to my lord, so really it could have been anyone. Phillips wrote, There is nothing in these later times hath more prejudiced the state of our affairs than that middle and moderate way in which they have been carried, and I dare affirm that the mild course in which we have with other states and treaties proceeded hath given more wounds than we could have received from the strongest or most apparent enemy. I shall wish that this present business may not be carried upon the same wheel, but that, necessity commanding it, a just and noble war may be preferred before a disadvantaging and dishonourable composition, and I do not doubt but God will bless the work and direct the success to his own glory, by confirming and extending his truth to his majesty's honour, by bringing his virtue and his power into a due esteem in foreign policy, and lastly to the safety and happiness of his kingdom, by preventing and securing it from the subtle and active desires of the Spanish policy. It was quite the transformation for Phelps. England should no longer be content to follow its peaceable policy, and it should instead force itself into the conflict now underway in Europe, for the sake of James's familial honour, as much as England's national interest. This, Phelps insisted, was the only way to arrest the interest of the Spanish policy, a policy which the previous year Phelps had wholeheartedly defended. As his Spanish connections had declined, so had another important set of contacts, with those of England's parliamentary party. Since 1614, Phelps had been in touch with some important figures in Westminster, and he penned letters to them as he wrote to his friends in Spain. It was in 1614 that King James dissolved Parliament, and he didn't permit it to assemble again until 1621. This gap of seven years made many MPs understandably frustrated, and they waited for the opportunity to leverage their greatest advantage. <laughs> that advantage being the appearance of King James before them to request some more money. The task of tracing the development of parliamentary relations with the monarch is one far outside the scope of this series, or the Thirty Years War book I wrote which the series is based on, but we can nonetheless pinpoint 1621 as a year of particular importance for King James and his MPs. Thanks to Phelps's letters, we're also made aware of the storm which was brewing in the background in 1620. When James did appeal to nobles like Phelps for a grant of money to be made to his daughter Elizabeth and her husband's ill-fated bohemian government, Phelps was quick to note that he held sympathy for the Winter Queen, but that 
the sense and genius of some gentlemen of quality with whom I casually met was that without a parliament they would not give a penny. In addition, Phillips wrote that he and his peers genuinely wished to aid Frederick and Elizabeth in their plight, but that first time must be spent on the rectifying and settling of things here in England, which now all men saw were both as touching God and man in very great disorder and distemper, and they had no hope nor imagination to obtain this but by a parliament. In spring 1620, King James permitted Frederick's allies to recruit for him in England. It was just as well that he should do this, since he was allowing the Spanish ambassador to do the same thing in England as late as 1622. Anything less than giving equal treatment to the two recruitment drives would have been a phenomenal scandal. Nonetheless, for Phillips and his parliamentary peers, who had been longing for a chance to sit in Parliament and debate the King's policies, such minor acts were not sufficient. News of Spain's invasion of the Palatinate had sharpened all dilemmas, and with even James in shock at the brazenness of this move, he initially seemed to approve its assembly, but he had to be coaxed and persuaded for another month, before finally on the 3rd of November 1620, the King capitulated. At noon, never a Lord of the Council could say we should have a Parliament, but after a long debate with the King, it was concluded on before night, and the writs are now writing, Almost immediately when Parliament assembled, the anti-Spanish opinions of the MPs in attendance became abundantly clear. If the Spanish marriage had been a hard sell before everything Frederick had done, it was next to impossible to sell it with so many suspicious statesmen loudly declaring their views in a public forum. In the case of Sir Robert Phillips, it was a very busy time. Here he displayed the full extent of his transformation as he mounted a sustained attack against Papists, who Phillips lambasted as, are deadly enemies. He also ridiculed the idea that Spanish trade negotiations would produce any net positive results for England, and he suggested boycotting Spanish tobacco in retaliation against limited Spanish tariffs on English goods. In November 1621, Phelps was assuring his peers that our safety and happiness cannot be secured but by a difference with Spain. On a session of the 3rd of December later in the year, Phelps did not mince words either, declaring, Wherefore I dare be bold to say that in the match with Spain there was neither honour, profit, nor safety. These were bold words indeed. As Phelps may have suspected, he had gone too far for the king's sensibilities. Over Christmas 1621, Sir Robert Phelps was whisked away to the Tower of London, where he would spend eight months before being released in the autumn of 1622. In the final analysis of Sir Robert Phelps, Catherine von Erd wrote that Ambition had led Sir Robert to support the Spanish match. Ambition combined with patriotism brought him to oppose it. A sense of self-preservation, however, prevented that opposition from carrying him too far. Phelps would die in 1638, before he was forced to make the ultimate choice between king or country in the British Civil War. Phelps, indeed, was not the only figure to suffer censure at the king's hand. Thanks to Gondomar's relationship with the king, and thanks to the king's vision of what the Spanish marriage would achieve, not only for his realm but also for Frederick and his daughter, Elizabeth II, James proved unwilling to countenance any semblance of opposition to his plans. This was a time in British political history when even the concept of a political opposition, per se, was not officially allowed to exist. Parliament existed, 
for the purpose of voting the king's money, not to usurp his prerogatives, as James continually feared they would do. That said, King James's Privy Council continually but gently urged the king to treat his parliament with respect and not to dissolve it with bad grace. I, for my part, think it a thing inestimable to your majesty's safety and service that you once part with your parliament with love and reverence. These had been the words of Sir Francis Bacon, one of England's keenest political minds and an essential servant of the king. Unfortunately for Bacon and those that had moved to persuade James that Parliament would be kept under control, it became virtually impossible to police the speeches of all independently thinking MPs. Parliament effectively broke down, and by the first few days of January 1622, James had announced his dissolution of it again, which certainly rankled opinion. Into this situation came Thomas Scott, author of the incendiary pamphlet Vox Populi, now returned to prominence with his second part of Vox Populi in 1624. This pamphlet ramped up the vitriol levelled against Count Gondomar by imagining him as the villain responsible for destroying Parliament in 1621. Since it was easier to blame this breakdown on a scheming Spanish Catholic ambassador than it was to explain the hidden details of personal interest and opinion which actually led to its collapse, Thomas Scott's work proved to be an immense success. Once more, Count Gondomar was cast as the unscrupulous schemer leading the king astray and taking advantage of James's sincere love of peace. The Spaniard had bribed his way into the state's most sensitive secrets. He had the nobility and the court in his pocket, and he had bought off or pushed out anyone that had learned the truth. As the date of Scott's second part of Vox Populi will attest, though, by 1624, King James was no longer searching for a successful resolution of the Spanish marriage. On the contrary, by that point, he had abandoned the policy altogether, and he was instead moving towards a more active anti-Spanish policy and league with the Dutch and Danes. English gentry from Somerset, like Sir Robert Phelps, were not the only figures, it seemed, that were capable of changing their minds. By autumn 1623, King James had been persuaded that Spain was never going to agree to the marriage alliance treaty that he desired, and so he abandoned the idea, and England drifted towards war with Spain as a result. From the sidelines, apparently removed from these Anglo-Spanish entreaties, was the individual who had done so much to add urgency and zeal to the English negotiations, Frederick V, the dispossessed Elector Palatine and King James's son-in-law. In the next episode, we're going to examine how Frederick attempted to involve himself in these complex negotiations, as we also watch the scales finally fall from King James's eyes, following a diplomatic faux pas almost too fantastic to be true. I hope you'll join me for that, history friends. But until then, my name is Zach, and this has been episode 29 of the 30 Years War. Thank you so much for listening to this show and for supporting us on Patreon. You're the best. I'll be seeing you all soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.